From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Nam, the show connecting your neighborhood with the world. It's Tech Tuesday. shooting of an unarmed black man by a white police officer in South Carolina last week felt like a tragic low point following months of growing tension over police tactics in African-American communities. But for those seeking justice in the shooting, the most potent weapon at the scene may have been the tiny mobile camera that captured the crime as it happened. The video is the latest example of a new wave of transparency that cell phone cameras and camera apps are forcing onto police departments nationwide. It's a trend that law enforcement agencies have tried to get ahead of with their own mobile technology. From Ferguson, Missouri, to the streets of Washington, D.C., body cameras are becoming a standard part of the law enforcement toolbox. But important legal and privacy questions remain over footage shot by both cops and citizens alike. So, how are cameras changing policing, and what rights and responsibilities come with this powerful tool? Joining us to have this Tech Tuesday conversation is Lindsay Miller, Senior Research Associate with the Police Executive Research Forum. Lindsay Miller joins us in studio. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Joins us, joining us from the studios of Crosswater Digital Media in Buffalo, New York, is Mickey Osterreicher, General Counsel of the National Press Photographers Association. Mickey, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for schlepping across town in order to <laughs> join us. You usually join us by phone. Well, all the snow's melted, so it's good. Thanks a lot. Joining us by phone from New York is Alex Howard. He is a columnist with Tech Republic and founder of A Pluribus Unum, which is a blog on technology and government. Alex, thank you for dropping out of a meeting briefly to join us. It's a pleasure to join you. You too can join the conversation. Call us at 800-433-8850. Have you ever recorded an encounter with law enforcement? What happened? You can send email to kojo.wamu.org or shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show with the hashtag Tech Tuesday. Alex, last week's fatal shooting of Walter Scott in Charleston prompted a lot of questions about what would have happened to Officer Michael Slager if the video had not surfaced. But the video also raised, um, it also erased any doubt about how useful cameras can be during encounters with law enforcement. Do you think technology has forced a tipping point in the public relationship and its understanding of law enforcement? I think we're definitely there in, in terms of the penetration of a lot of these technologies into the lives of, uh, of regular consumers, not just early adopters. You know, we've, we've had the capacity to take uh, video and, and you know, inexpensive handheld devices uh, for some years now, but having smartphones in the hands of you know, a majority of American adults, and certainly uh, we can expect that to happen all over the world, does shift something. Because, you know, it's the, the best camera is always the one you have in your pocket, and now these cameras have uh, much better sensors. They've got much better lenses. They've got much larger storage capacity. Um, the data uh, connection speed is much higher, so we can upload them much more easily. And then, of course, social media can spread it. Um, when there has uh, this many people that are connected to each other and to information, I think it does change the dynamic between um, institutions and the people they govern. And I think we're seeing that. Uh, and in many cases, it's catching uh, institutions, the governments, the law enforcement bodies, unaware. Uh, you know, it, it's happened so quickly, uh, I think, in terms of adoption that in many cases, officers still apparently aren't thinking through the fact that what they do in public can be recorded by the public and then shared between members of the public. And the feedback loops um, can, I think, rightfully describe as, as vicious sometimes. Um, and uh, in this particular case, which is, I think is uh, uh, about as tragic as you get, um, we saw uh, firing and, and charging an officer with murder, uh, something that I think can fairly be said wouldn't have happened otherwise. And it's having an impact upon uh, lots of conversations here in New York City, where I'm calling you from today. I know the police commissioner has now, I think, shifted his stance on putting um, body cams on officers. Um, you know, that, that there's clearly something happening now 
um, that maybe wasn't in the same way uh, a couple of years ago. And not just here. What's interesting is that cameras are acting as a truth, kind of truth serum all over. In the Charleston case, police initially reported that Officer Michael Slager killed Walter Scott because he felt threatened, but the release of the video showed an entirely different scenario. Alex, in your travel, in your travels, you have seen citizens in other countries using cameras as accountability tools too. Can you tell us about that in places like Brazil? Yeah, um, Brazil is very interesting uh, in the sense that you know they're going through the same challenges that, that uh, we are, um, but in a, they're a younger democracy, uh, and they still have some vestiges of. Uh, their military dictatorship, which has you know, been part of their living memory, including uh, their police forces, which have some uh, militarization and, and have significant corruption issues. Uh, you know, organized crime is a problem everywhere. In the, the big cities, um, there are barrios of favelas that they may not uh, venture into. And, and now um, one of the, the signal uh, things that this combination uh, of uh, inexpensive video, social media, and connection can do is to draw attention to conditions um, that people simply couldn't anymore. I mean, I'm here at uh, Civic Hall in New York where people are talking about civic technology. This you know, conversation has gotten much bigger. And there was a great historical reference back to when flash uh, tech, you know, flashes came onto cameras and that enabled people for the first time to go into tenements here in New York and to document what the lives of the poor were like, which then ignited you know, kind of progressive reforms to improve living conditions. And if you look at places like Brazil or India, Africa, anywhere where um, living conditions are still really quite difficult, what this can do is actually document, provide documentary evidence that can be used to show people in power how things really are in a way that can, um, you know, really countermand or, you know, just simply contradict official accounts that um, progress is happening in infrastructure, that people are actually showing up to work in schools or government buildings, that anything that's happening that where there was a narrative where it had the official imprint of being truth, um, can now be balanced by what citizens are seeing and sharing and then focusing attention upon through, you know, these different networks. And, uh, you know, people describe this as, as surveillance sometimes, too. You know, we're watching them watching us. Uh, you know, to go back to you know, the juvenile quote, I think the, the watchers are us, it's that little brother. Uh, and in many cases, that's having a, a, a salutary effect. Um, there are some real challenges around, however, uh, privacy as well. And, and that's yeah, gonna... part of the discussion here, too. Oh, yeah, we'll talk about that later. It's a Tech Tuesday conversation about how cameras are changing law enforcement and policing. A conversation you can join by calling 800 433-8850 or by going to our website, kojoshow.org, asking a question or making a comment there. Lindsay Miller, even before the events in Ferguson, Missouri last year, your organization, the Police Executive Research Forum, was looking at how cameras were being used by police departments around the country. How have the incidents in Ferguson, Cleveland, New York, and now Charleston changed the conversation in law enforcement about the use of body cameras? Well, you're right. We started looking into it in 2013, and at that time, there were already several agencies across the country, across the world, that had adopted body cameras. But I think that the events in Ferguson and the subsequent events like that have really accelerated the pace at which law enforcement agencies are looking to embrace these cameras. Um, the police agencies that we worked with um, are definitely, definitely interested in the cameras. They are embracing them. They want the cameras just as much as the public wants them to have the cameras. And I think these events have only solidified that and have caused, caused these agencies to really move forward with them. As we saw in Charleston, bystanders are increasingly whipping out cameras when they see something dramatic happening. So is the adoption of body cameras viewed as a defensive measure by police departments you've talked to, or are cameras now viewed as a crucial element in the law enforcement toolbox? I think they're definitely even viewed as a very, very important tool for law enforcement. I think um, they're viewed, you know, to increase police accountability and transparency, which, as we've seen in these events, uh, body cameras are definitely good for that. They are also good to, um, you know, use for training, for police training. Agencies are pulling out footage and showing officers what's good and what's bad about what other officers have done. They're used to monitor performance and increase police performance uh, to really strengthen that. And, you know, they're used to document both the good and bad of what police are doing. I think a lot of police chiefs that we've worked with, you know, they, they know that everyone's filming everyone. As you said, it's it's easy for the public to film them, and they want to, to have the chance to be able to do that as well and to, you know, demonstrate when they're doing the right thing as well. 
About 160 D.C. police officers began wearing body cameras in October as part of a pilot program, which is now completed. D.C. intends to expand that program. Baltimore, Denver, New Orleans, Detroit, also doing test runs of body cameras. Even the head of the Capitol Hill Police Union recently saying he's interested in pursuing body cameras for his 1,800 officers. But um, Mickey Osterreicher, the man who recorded the video in Charleston, Faden Santana says he worried about his own safety before ultimately deciding to release the film publicly. The fact that Santana was scared to implicate police says a lot about the power dynamic between police and the communities they serve, but it also prompts questions about our right to record in public. Can you remind us of those rights, Mickey, when we encounter police? Uh, Sure. Uh, Under the First Amendment, uh, there are a number of clauses that come into play. The first would be the right to assemble, to actually be out in a public place. The second one would be um, a free speech right. And I I always talk about this and people say, yeah, but we're talking about photographing and recording. What does that have to do with speech? Uh, Speech has been deemed to be a form of expression through case law and expression has been deemed to be a form of speech. Obviously, if you can't express yourself, you can't speak. So uh, cameras and recording and those types of devices are protected by the First Amendment. And then for those who are members of the press, they they get the additional uh, protection uh, of the free press clause. So all of those come into play. And really what happens is there is no reasonable expectation of privacy in a public place. That's how we distinguish public from private. When you're in your own home, that's where you have the greatest expectation of privacy, but not so out on the street, which is why we are photographed and recorded dozens, if not scores of times a day by surveillance cameras and other things. Um, And through a number of cases, uh, the courts have also held that that holds true for police performing their official duties in a public place. They also do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And as long as you're not physically interfering with them performing those duties, you have every right to photograph and record them. That means you don't have to stop filming if a police officer orders you to? Well, you know, unfortunately, uh, they have the badge and they have the gun. And if they order you to do that and you refuse to do that, you may end up getting arrested. But that's what uh, a number of these very important cases are all about, where people have either been interfered with and or arrested uh, by police for doing something that they have a First Amendment right to be doing. And I think that that right is becoming more and more clearly established and, and officers um, do not uh, be able to are not able to claim that they were not aware that that right is clearly established in their area and therefore they thought that they could tell somebody to turn off the camera or to go away. As I mentioned, the First Amendment is there, but it's not absolute. It's subject to reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. So an officer can say to somebody, sir, ma'am, I need you to step out of the street and onto the sidewalk. I don't want you to get hit by a car. It's a public safety issue. Certainly that would be a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction. Sir, ma'am, I need you to step back a few feet. Again, reasonable. But I need you to turn off that camera or go away. That is not a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction, and that is an abridgment of your First Amendment rights. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 800-433-8850. Do you know your rights when you encounter law enforcement in public places? What about private spaces? Should there be more restrictions to filming in public and releasing the footage? 800-433-8850. You can send email to koju at wamu.org. Mickey, if you filmed what could be criminal activity, what rights do you have with regard to your footage or what should you do with your footage? Well, even that dynamic is changing. Um, We have seen uh, quite a number of cases where police have seized the camera and deleted the footage or removed the media card and and that footage disappears. Uh, Under the law, there's a something called exigent circumstances. And if you've filmed a serious crime, and it's a three-pronged test, and the police uh, know that a serious crime has been committed, uh, have probable cause to believe that there's evidence of that crime on your camera, and the third prong is have a reasonable belief that without them taking some action, that evidence will be either lost or destroyed, they can seize your camera, but 
they can't view the footage until they obtain a subpoena or a search warrant. Now, what we're seeing is, as I mentioned earlier, police are sometimes turning that exigent circumstance on its head because oftentimes the crime that's being committed may be one that's being committed by another law enforcement officer or that law enforcement officer, and they don't want that evidence to exist. Um, What's changing now in terms of technology is those images used to just reside on that camera. And if you seized the camera or the media card or deleted the files, that was the end of it. But once again, technology is racing ahead and people are now able to live stream that video to a place in the cloud so that whether the camera gets rolled over by, you know, a truck, it's not going to make any difference because that video is already out there. What should you know? if a police officer asks to view your footage or to take your footage? Well, you know, there's always voluntary consent. If an officer asks you and makes a request, sir, ma'am, I believe that you may have recorded some evidence here. May I take a look at it? Certainly, if you feel like it, you can show them that video. You can offer to make a copy of it. Many departments have policies along those guidelines, but that has to be voluntary. It can't be a situation where you're surrounded by eight very large uh, police officers who say, if you don't show us what's on your camera or you don't delete what's on your camera, you're getting locked up. Uh, That's coerced consent. It's not consent really in any way. And as a matter of fact, in in one very uh, specific case, the United States Department of Justice has told, in this case it was the Baltimore Police Department, but it applies to all police agencies, that there are no circumstances under which uh, somebody's video or pictures or images should be deleted or destroyed. Basically, what's happening there is you're not only um, having an abridgment of your First Amendment rights, but your Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable search and seizure and your Fourteenth Amendment rights to due process. In other words, they've taken your property. Those images belong to you. And, and without any process at all, um, destroyed or deleted them, uh, it'd be the same as walking up to you and saying, you know, I've been looking for an icon camera like that. I really like it. I think I'll take it. It's no less a taking than, than what I just described. Got to take a short break. If you have called, stay on the line. It's a Tech Tuesday conversation about cameras and how they're changing law enforcement and policing. You can also send your question or comment to kojo at wamu.org or send us a tweet at Kojo Show. Do body cameras add an element of trust and accountability to police policing or do they foster mistrust? 800-433-8850. I'm Kojo Namdi. Twelve twenty-five now. Cloudy, rainy, sixty-four degrees. This is WAMU eighty-eight five. Up at three on here now. Russia is closing in on a deal that would send Russian missiles to Iran. Russian President Vladimir Putin approved the delivery of S three hundred surface-to-air missiles. A similar deal fell through back in two thousand ten under pressure from Western governments. That much more three o'clock here and now. A near 100% chance of showers today with patchy fog and a high of 64. Morning Edition is everywhere. One Rose, Sao Paulo, Beirut, London. Reporting from bunkers, alleys, jungles, and deserts. But most importantly, we're wherever you are. Start your day with a trip around the world and wake up with Morning Edition from NPR News. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from the Phillips Collection, presenting Man Ray Human Equations, a journey from mathematics to Shakespeare, an intersection of art and science that defined modern art at the beginning of the 20th century. More at phillipscollection.org. And from Virginia Tech, offering more than 45 doctorate, master's, and certificate programs in the National Capital Region, with classes in Falls Church and Alexandria, accessible by Metro, ncr.vt.edu. And from General Dynamics IT Health Solutions, dedicated to providing IT solutions that meet the challenges of a new era in healthcare. General Dynamics Health, gdit.com slash health. 
Welcome back. It's Tech Tuesday, Cameras and Law Enforcement. We're talking with Alex Howard. He's a columnist with Tech Republic and founder of E Pluribus Unum, which is a blog on technology and government. Mickey Osterreicher is general counsel of the National Press Photographers Association. And Lindsay Miller is senior research associate with the Police Executive Research Forum. I'd like to go to the phones to Paul in Alexandria, Virginia. Paul, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi there. Um, one point I wanted to add uh, to the discussion is what do you do with the evidence? And that's really something that the court, you know, and in my experience, the courts haven't really gotten a firm grasp on. And, you know, with what weight do you give the evidence from a body camera? And, you know, when the evidence is, is destroyed or spoiled, what, what sort of sanctions would a, an institution like a police department face for doing something like that? So, uh, to me, the question of, of whether it's a good or bad idea to, you know, use body cameras or record police interaction um, is completely secondary to the actual question of do we have enough um, in our legal system to actually give it teeth and to, for the courts to actually use this to, you know, sanction it. I mean, and to give a example of this, you look at punitive damages in these excessive force cases, which in a previous job I actually defended the police in, in, in these types of cases. And there are caps that the judges use based on the Supreme Court um, to prevent these sort of crazy, excessive, punitive damages, which might actually be instructive and helpful for cases where behavior is particularly egregious, like these deletions of files by the police. So that's just my comment. Care to comment yourself, Mickey Osterreicher? Sure. Um, in terms of evidence, obviously, chain of evidence, all the things that are needed to present evidence. Uh, it, video evidence is, is nothing new. Uh, courts have used it uh, for, for many, many years. And, and so I, I don't think that that uh, is really as critical a question. In terms of the what do you do if your images have been uh, deleted or, or somehow lost um, intentionally. And, and there are quite a number of cases, the, the one in Baltimore, uh, Sharp v. versus the city of Baltimore police, being uh, one of the seminal ones uh, in which Mr. Sharp was actually uh, at the Preakness and recorded police uh, making an arrest. Uh, they eventually, he refused to turn over his phone. They eventually took his phone from him. And when they returned it to him, they didn't charge him with anything. They had deleted not only what he had shot, but much of what was on his phone, and we all know, you know, what we have on our phones in terms of names, addresses, family photos, all of those kinds of personal information uh, that the Supreme Court uh, just recently uh, decided nine nothing that police uh, incident to an arrest have no right to look at those images. Uh, but that's a separate case. But in in uh, in the Sharp case, uh, they. They, he, along with the ACLU, brought a uh, 1983 action. That's basically a federal civil rights lawsuit under 42 United States Code Section 1983, which basically says if you have been deprived of your civil rights under color of law, and that's a kind of a, a, a nice phrase for by a police officer, then you have a right to bring that action. And indeed, what happened through that was that the city of Baltimore police was forced to issue new guidelines and training and pay $250,000. Those were mostly in attorney's fees. But when you look at the case in the First Circuit in Glick, uh, the settlement there was $172,000. In another case in the Seventh seventh Circuit, ACLU v. Alvarez, which again has to do with the, the right to photograph and record, because the state's attorney insisted on taking that case all the way to the Supreme Court after losing in the Seventh Circuit, the settlement there was in the neighborhood of $650,000. These are all monies that come from taxpayers. Uh, and I, I think, and there's actually been some legislation, although it hasn't passed yet, that if uh, we found that officers were more personally liable 
um, for these damages. I think we'd probably start to see a cultural change uh, take place in terms of attitudes of the public recording. But I definitely commend PERF. I, I attended the conference that they had two years ago in Washington with about 300 chiefs of police on the subject of, of body cams. I, I think the idea that police now will also be recording will give them a better understanding of the public's rights because, once again, at least when you're out in public, uh, the, both the public and the police are operating under the same principle, whereas there's no reasonable expectation of privacy and people can be recorded. Perf, um, Paul, thank you very much for your cause. Perf being the acronym for the Police Executive Research Forum. Lindsay, um, these encounters make, seem to make a, a real case for police body cameras, so I'm wondering what you've learned about how cameras impact behavior by both police and the public when they're on. Yeah, from what we've learned from the police uh, agencies that we worked with is that they can definitely um, help de-escalate potentially confrontational situations between uh, between police and members of the public. And, you know, although there's just been a little bit of research on this, there's going to be a growing body of research on, on just, you know, what those effects are. Uh, one of the one of the most prominent studies, one of the earliest studies was out of Rialto, California, which found that uh, after the body cameras were implemented there, uh, I believe there was a 60% reduction in officer use of force incidents and an 88% reduction uh, in complaints against officers. And similar findings have been uh, have been found in Mesa, Arizona, and Phoenix, Arizona, where there's also been studies on the impact that these cameras have. And you know whether that uh, is because it makes the police act more professionally or it makes the citizens act better. Um, you know who's to say? But we've heard that it's it's really helping behavior on both sides and. Um, you know, of course, that's just one tool, and, and we always caution that body cameras are not a cure-all. They're not a panacea. They don't take the place of good training and good policies and community policing efforts and things like that. But they are definitely an important tool that, um, you know, interestingly is being embraced by everyone from police chiefs to the ACLU to, you know, community groups. So they can be very helpful. Alex Howard, it's my understanding that you and your camera have had some minor encounters with police officers here in Washington. Can you tell us about that? Uh, that's true. Uh, I think they have been uh, absolutely minor in comparison to the kinds of issues uh, that we've seen around the country. So I, I'd be hesitant to compare them, but it has been useful for me to take pictures of people in public spaces and to see what happens in various places around the world. So you go to the uh, National Book Festival. Fair. Yes, I did. <laughs> I went and I saw former First Lady uh, Laura Bush being interviewed uh, by C-SPAN, and I uh, moved over uh, to take a picture of her, and I had someone in security detail tell me I couldn't do that. And I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can. This is a public space. She's being interviewed on a public network. And they said, oh, here, well, you know, and I, let's go talk about it over here on the, the road and moved me over and then, you know, just stared at me. You know, there, there was basically a, a uh, decision that I wasn't going to be allowed to take a picture if someone in public doing something on a public network. It was a, it was a surprise. Um, I also took a picture of the Thurgood uh, Marshall building right next to Union Station, and a security guard uh, told me that that wasn't allowed, and I assured him that it, it most definitely was. Um, you know, then, then there's, there's some, uh, you know, useful things that people can do um, to see where these kinds of uh, restrictions are being made quietly um, and to assert your rights. The question is, you know, do you want to make too much of an issue of it? In this case, with uh, former First Lady, I didn't choose to do that. It didn't seem to be a very useful place to assert, uh, you know, that right. But uh, in other contexts, it becomes quite important, uh, particularly, uh, I think, around people's peaceful assembly, as we've seen around the country. On to the telephones again. Raymond in Washington, D.C. Raymond, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Kojo. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I wanted to comment on a question that you asked one of your guests about how police departments view the cameras that they are uh, starting to implement. Uh, she said that almost, if not all, uh, police departments were definitely embracing and going to use the cameras as like a training tool and... Uh, as a very, very uh, good tool for the police departments to use. However, I've spoken to quite a few police officers recently uh, down here in D.C., and their opinions of it seem to be more of a defensive kind of uh, opinion. Uh, 
so the answer that a police officer gave me when I asked him what he thought about the cameras was, well, now the public can absolutely see that what we are doing as police officers is 100% legal and is greatly uh, within our rights and is nearly m- merely protecting uh, ourselves, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I would beg to differ with your guest that it is sometimes being viewed as a defensive measure for individual police officers to be able to cover themselves in terms of uh, uh, having the video footage available to the public. Uh, and also, I'm also a little concerned about the uh, new implementation of the Washington, D.C. Uh, body cams because they have the ability to turn them off whenever they so choose. Yeah, we'll get to what Police Chief Kathy Lanier of the District of Columbia had to say about that in a little while. But first, Lindsay Miller, the view that police officers see this as a defensive mechanism, I suspect that most police officers feel that they go about their job in a professional way and that the cameras will simply reflect that. No, that's right. I, I definitely uh, don't disagree with the caller. I think that, you know, that is a, an element of it. I think that it can be both viewed as a tool and as a, a way to demonstrate that, uh, you know, when they're doing the right thing, that they're um, to, to show the public that. That's why uh, a lot of federal consent decrees for police agencies that are under investigation by the Department of Justice are now requiring body cameras. It's why the court uh, in New York, um, in the stop and first case, you know, uh, used body cameras as one of the is one of the um, tools that they asked the, the police department to implement. And so, you know, it is definitely can be used a defensive mechanism. And I think that um, you know, the police chiefs that we talk to overwhelmingly believe that the majority of their officers are good, hardworking officers who are trying to do the right thing. And they want a chance to demonstrate that. And they want the chance to uh, be able to identify and address the officers who aren't doing the right thing. Here now, and thank you for your call, Raymond, is Stephen in Baltimore, Maryland. Stephen, your turn. Hey, Kojo, how are you doing? Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I am a law enforcement officer in the state of Maryland, and uh, I currently have a dash cam in my vehicle. I start every encounter with the citizen with we are being recorded. And uh, I just want you to know it's it's been a great tool thus far for me in terms of mitigating complaints that citizens may have and in terms of uh, recording illegal behavior. I'm I'm 100% in support of having body cams. Again, because they're a great tool for us uh, in both investigative and, and defensive measures. And, uh, again, I, I just want to end with the point that these are new technology for us, and uh, we, they do get put through a lot of in, in the wear and tear of our, our daily activities. And, and as a result of that, um, you know, we, we encounter glitches every now and then that, that people can perceive as, as being, uh, you know, or we, we turn that off when in reality – my battery dies all the time. Things, things like this do happen. And so I look forward to having the technology evolve and being even more uh, useful for us in our day-to-day activities. Stephen, are you familiar with any of your colleagues who object to body cameras, who think it will change the way they do their jobs? You know, currently I'm not. Uh, I'm relatively new on, on a local force, but uh, I think we all, we all welcome it. At, at times it's a nuisance, again, just because it's an extra piece of equipment we have to carry and maintain. Uh, but other than that, it is, it is a great tool for us, and I know a lot of us, it, it assists in our report writing in terms of recording exact statements that are made and uh, exact actions that are taken. You know, was it a left foot or a right foot, a left hand or a right hand? Those are all things we can go back and review the footage for that assists us in, in our uh, legal investigation. Okay, thank you very much for your call. Lindsay, let's talk a little bit about the privacy concerns that come up when officers enter private homes with their cameras running. What have you found is the most common approach around the country to recording in private spaces? Well, most police agencies take the uh, position that if their officers have a legal right to be in the home, then they also have the right to have their body cameras running. Um, so if they are called there you know, by the residents as a call for service, or if they're there to execute a warrant or an arrest or a search, um, then they are. Then they feel that they have the right to record and the duty to record as part of their, as you know, part of documenting everything that's going on. Um, now that being said, there are a lot of privacy issues when when you're talking about uh, filming inside people's private homes, and you know, a lot of people worry uh, if the neighbor sees the police are coming to my home and they're filming, is the neighbor going to be able then to uh, request footage of that to see what's going on inside my house? And so, you know, our policy recommendations that we put forward. Uh, try to address some of those things when it comes to data retention and public disclosure and uh, and when to turn the camera off and on when you're talking about victims of crime and witnesses of crime and things, things like that. But it is a serious issue. 
Mickey Osterreicher, a lot of people believe that their home is their castle, that they are king and queen of their castle, and what they say goes. So if one such individual asks an officer to stop recording in his or her home, is that officer required to do so? Uh, I think it's going to really depend on what the department policy is on that, and officers will need to know. I believe the policy will probably vary from department to department, uh, and they may uh, indeed require the, the officer to continue to record. I think this is going to be uh, another one of those cases where the law needs to catch up with the technology, and, and we will see. I think an argument can be made on both sides in terms of whether or not when an officer appears at your house, either because you've called them or because they've gotten a report and they're doing an investigation, whether that then entitles them to, to record. I mean, I think it's, I think we all realize, uh, because that's the whole discussion here, it's one thing to observe something, it's then another thing to make a uh, audiovisual record of it. And, and I think we will probably, in, in short order, see cases um, where the courts will have to decide uh, which right uh, prevails here in terms of the right to privacy or, or, or law enforcement's uh, right to, to investigate uh, uh, crimes. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation and get to your calls. If the lines are all busy, go to our website, kojoshow.org. Join the conversation there or send us an email to kojo.wamu.org or a tweet at kojoshow. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up at one, local aftershocks of global terrorist attacks, Nigerians and Somalis living here on community responses to horrific events abroad. Plus, black in America, how a growing number of black immigrants is changing the picture of minorities. Today at one on the Kojo Nandi Show on WAMU, 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Good afternoon. This is WAMU 88.5. I'm Pat Brogan. 1243 rain outside. Expect that for most of the day. 64 degrees, though it is warm here in northwest Washington. On the next Fresh Air, no one in politics is more ruthless than President Frank Underwood, played by Kevin Spacey on the Netflix series House of Cards. On the next Fresh Air, we speak with the series creator. Join us. Fresh Air starts at 2. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from the Cultural Arts Center presenting the Anamasri Band, performing songs, music, poetry, and more in the Egyptian cultural tradition. Thursday, April 16th at 7 p.m. More at montgomerycollege.edu slash CAC. And from General Dynamics Data Center Solutions, transforming, securing, maintaining, and hosting government IT enterprises. General Dynamics Data Center Solutions, gdit.com slash data center. And from Chipotle, committed to serving food sourced from family farmers who respect the land and the animals in their care. More at chipotle.com. Chipotle, food with integrity. It's a Tech Tuesday conversation on cameras and how they are changing law enforcement and policing. We're talking with Mickey Osterreicher, General Counsel of the National Press Photographers Association. Lindsay Miller is Senior Research Associate with the Police Executive Research Forum. And Alex Howard is a columnist with Tech Republic and founder of A Pluribus Unum, which is a blog on technology and government. Lindsay, here in the district, there have been major concerns about privacy and how long police departments can hold on to footage. What have you found most departments do regarding storage and retention? Well, it depends on the type of footage. If the footage captures um, an evidentiary, if it captures evidentiary footage, such as evidence of a crime or a confrontational encounter with a member of the public, then generally agencies are required to keep that footage for as long as the evidence uh, laws require. So, for instance, if you capture evidence of a homicide on your body camera footage, then you generally, in most places, have to keep that footage indefinitely. Um, but if it captures you know, a non-evidentiary event or a non-event, just such a routine encounter, um, there's a little bit more leeway there. And that's where some of the, the questions come up. Most of the agencies that we've spoken with retain that sort of data for between 60 to 90 days. Uh, it gives people enough time usually to file a complaint if they would like to file a complaint. Uh, and, you know, they have the footage then to investigate that complaint. 
but it uh, you know helps free up storage space and it helps you know address some of those privacy issues by keeping this this you know non evidentiary footage for too long. Here in the district, Chief Kathleenir says it'll be ninety days. But how are law enforcement agencies tackling the public disclosure issues that come with all this video? Is this a case of the law catching up to technology? I think that's absolutely right. I think that is the biggest issue that we're seeing now. Um, you know, the more that the public is aware that police agencies have body cameras and that they they know this footage exists, they are starting to really re- uh, make these requests. And in, in places with really open public disclosure laws, such as Washington State, you're seeing agencies really have to work hard to, uh, to keep up with the public disclosure requests. And so it really depends on the jurisdiction, the uh, openness of the disclosure laws in, this, in that state. But it is definitely one of the, the biggest issues that I think agencies are, are wrestling with now. This is what D.C. Police Chief Kathy Lanier had to say when we asked her whether body camera footage taken by cops in D.C. would be subject to freedom of information requests. Right now, um, we couldn't comply if we, if we wanted to. The extensive amount of editing and redaction that would have to be done to ensure the privacy of individuals um, captured in the video, the, we, there's no way we would be able to do that. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're balancing the protection of the privacy of people um, who become part of these videos, but also finding a way to make sure that people that need to have access to these videos have access. Prosecutors, defense attorneys, people involved in the instance. What we're getting is a lot of curiosity seekers, and, and we don't think that this is the appropriate way for these to be used. Um, so I think that's kind of where we're, we're falling out along the privacy, you know, transparency balances is that we have to make sure that people are protected. And those that have a, you know, a stake in the video, we, we don't have any problem with sharing. That is D.C. Police Chief Kathy Lanier and the mayor of Washington, D.C., Mayor Bowser, is now saying she said this week that she would like to keep that footage from being subject to FOIA. Uh, Alex Howard, what do you make of all this? Well, it's interesting how this almost always comes back to power. You know, uh, with with FOIA requests, you know, do the, uh, the does the public have an affirmative right to access how the uh, police forces are exercising power, um, and do they have access to information about themselves? I, I think that's one of the you know, modern expressions of, of rights. In fact, is do we have access to data that's being collected about us, uh, our own data, in some cases, in institutions? Um, you know, in the same way we have access to a credit record, should we be able to get access to a data broker report? Um, should we have able to get access to recordings about themselves, particularly when these become quite relevant? You know, I, I think there was a great example in the Greater Greater Washington blog uh, for a cyclist who was hit on an intersection, and um, there was film of it uh, taken by a traffic cam that showed what happened and showed the driver being at fault, and it was quite a difficult process to get that video. And there was an issue around retention, you know, and uh, this kind of technological issue being cited. Um, you know, this goes to the greater issue, unfortunately, of, of uh, government use of technology, something we've talked about in the past, and, and the quality uh, of the tech itself. Uh, there are many cases, I think, where we can make a pretty good case that um, they're not getting the kind of, of uh, modern uh, recording and data retention, uh, video retention technology that they should be or, or archiving, um, which would make this a lot more easy. Um, you know, I, I do think there are some you know, really pertinent issues around where people have some uh, rights in terms of recording if they come into private homes. Uh, the ACLU, I think I, I tweeted out a link around the policies they advocate for. Um, and in many cases, I think you'd see some of those recordings become quite important uh, where you have mistaken SWAT rates, for instance, and then that video becomes relevant there as well. Uh, I do think the technology is is moving along very quickly. Uh, I think we should be looking for uh, procurement reform so that these, uh, you know, departments can get access to body cams and then um, some kinds of baked-in technologies where we might see improvements where they're trying to exercise the power not to record. You know, there are examples where officers might turn off a dashboard camera um, in a car, and, of course, those videos have become quite ubiquitous. The shows like Cops, you know, something we see a lot on television where this video has become inserted into the public consciousness. In the same way, perhaps, if an officer draws his or her weapon, maybe that should activate a body cam recording. And if it doesn't, then there should be a log of that, right? Some kind of, of tracking in headquarters. Um, you could think of a video being uh, uploaded to a cloud-based server that's protected, that's secure, um, where the officer doesn't have the ability 
to edit it or to otherwise alter it, or if there's some external auditing body which has access to that. These are all policy issues that I think, you know, the states are going to have to work out, the legislatures are going to work, work out, city councils work out, and we have the common thing, or have our laboratories of democracy all think through this in a way that makes sense to them and individual municipalities. Certainly what happens with Mayor Bowser in D.C. will be of interest to the rest of the country. Um, I do think that the presumption towards making things less accessible to FOIA is a dangerous one um, and one that should be thought through very quickly uh, and, and carefully as these things are getting used. Um, the idea that someone should always have access to video recorded of them, I think that's a pretty good first principle. Uh, and then if they choose to release that or the family of a deceased person chooses to release that, that's probably putting um, the, the preponderance in, in the right direction. On to the telephones again here. Sam Aurora in Rockville, Maryland. Sam is a former Maryland state legislator. Sam Aurora, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thanks, Gojo. I appreciate you having me on and having such a thoughtful discussion. Um, I think that your, your panelists are putting their fingers on some um, some really thorny delineations, of, uh, particularly of unintended consequences of technology and these issues. And one of the ones that's been discussed, certainly in the Maryland State House and around the country in different jurisdictions, is what to do with confidential informants or those in the community who might be deterred from telling officers something, knowing that things they say would be on camera and recorded um, and without any knowledge of what the retention laws would be. That was certainly something that we thought about last year and I think will continue to be discussed. Um, and one of the interesting quirks about Maryland that uh, you know many of your listeners will know is it's a, a two-party consent state for recordings. And in the past couple of years, that's, uh, that's caused some issues for people who have attempted to record uh, law enforcement officers in public locations. Um, certainly there was a famous instance of a motorcyclist with his helmet cam who posted a video of his encounter to YouTube and uh, was uh, then, I, I forget if he was charged or just alleged to be um, wiretapping. And um, there was a similar problem, I, I recall, but this may have been photograph only, with an AP photographer in Wheaton, Maryland. So these issues are going to continue to press sort of in the public conscience um, but there are unintended consequences that policymakers are going to have to wrestle with. Um, care to comment on that, Mickey Osterreicher? Um, sure. Uh, the, I understand in terms of the wiretap laws, they have been in question in a number of the cases, the one in the First Circuit, the one in the Seventh Circuit. But pretty much uh, the way that most circuits are coming down is the fact that if you are out in public, you do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy, and that applies to not only the visual, but the audio recording. I mean, these wiretap laws, obviously, depending on whether it's one-party consent, all-party consent, uh, it, they were set up for telephonic recordings. When you're on a phone with somebody, uh, whether or not you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Pretty much the courts are saying when you're out in public, and especially for police officers performing their official duties, there is no such expectation of privacy so they wouldn't apply. The one thing I just wanted to mention, going back to an earlier question, in terms of recording buildings, it's, it should be interesting to note that the Department of Homeland Security uh, issued a directive to the Federal Protective Services, to the uh, law enforcement that actually guards federal buildings, and I believe this was in 2010. So it's been around for a while, and it's still in effect. And it basically directs them to that People that photograph buildings from a public place, in other words, if you're standing on the sidewalk, they have uh, no right to tell somebody you can't photograph the building. If you can see it in public, if you can observe it, then you can photograph and record it as long as you're not interfering with law enforcement doing their job. Lindsay Miller, it seems to me that this business about confidential informants is almost fairly straightforward. No confidential informant wants to be recorded. No, that's right. Most of the agencies that we uh, worked with, they actually prohibit officers from recording conversations with confidential informants. And when it comes to uh, crime witnesses or members of the community who are you know, wanting to come forward to share information about a crime, um, you know, we heard from a lot of police officials that they, they do worry that people are going to be uh, less less you know, willing to speak on camera or less willing to, to give information if they have to speak on camera uh, for privacy concerns, fear of retaliation, those sorts of things. So uh, what we recommend and what a lot of agencies do is that uh, in those situations, giving officers the uh, the limited discretion to be able to turn the camera off if the person says that they won't share information if it's uh, being filmed. So they can either go just to audio or uh, turn the camera off and state why they're turning the camera off in that situation. 
On to CJ in Silver Spring, Maryland. CJ, your turn. Thank you. A long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you. Since 2005, I have uh, done uh, professionally several thousand um, covert video recordings using almost exactly the kind of equipment that the police departments will be using uh, when they adopt this technology. Because uh, the um, clients that I'm doing this for as a mystery shopper are very concerned about state laws, I'm concerned that we really haven't been talking about the difference between legal coverage of audio recording versus video. As a, as a reporter, you must be aware that there are 14 states in which you as a reporter have to get the other party's permission to audio record before you do a recording. And the same is true of any employee that I might be encountering when I'm audio and video recording. And most of these videos uh, set audio. There are 14 states where... Um, so have, have, you done, have you done mystery shopping in some of those states, and what do you do with the audio and video recordings? Oh, in those states, the client has to demonstrate that um, they have uh, signed affidavits from all employees stating that they are aware that uh, they may be uh, audio recorded in the course of their work. It's the same as when you call in someplace and you hear a recording that says, for training purposes, this phone call may be recorded. Gotcha, but we're running out of time very quickly, so I'd like to get a response from, uh, I guess, you, Mickey Osterreicher. Well, it goes back to what I said earlier. If we're talking about talking on the telephone, that's a completely different audio recording type of situation than recording audio on a public street. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have, but you raise a fascinating issue, CJ. Lindsay Miller, a senior research associate with the Police Executive Research Forum. Lindsay, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Mickey Osterreicher is general counsel with the National Press Photographers Association. Mickey, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Alex Howard is a columnist with Tech Republic and founder of A Pluribus Unum, which is a blog on technology and government. Alex, you can go back to your meeting. <laughs> Thanks so much. Great <laughs> thank you for you. joining us. And thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojo Namdi show, Top Down Change, the outgoing principal of T.C. Williams High School on turning the Alexandria School around, plus free-range parenting and poverty. For many families, leaving kids alone isn't a choice but a necessity. The Kojo Namdi show, noon till 2 tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Good afternoon. You're listening to WAMU 88.5. It's 12.59 now. Here now it starts at 3 o'clock after fresh air. Russia is closing in on a deal that would send Russian missiles to Iran. Russian President Vladimir Putin approved the delivery of... Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at WAMU.org. Just click the donate button. And thanks.